All right. Uh, it's written not quite there. I'll tell you. It's, where. Mine says meeting is now streaming live on Facebook. We are live on Facebook. All right, because it's not showing up. Hi, on all you Facebook friends. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself, Denny? Hi, I'm uh, Denny Sywell. We are live. <laughs> I have this extra sound coming up. Denny, I am Facebook. So, oh, see, there you go. But I am so happy you're here. I have another screen open so that I can see the comments. I'm not really going to look at them because I'm going to look at you. But um, but I'm happy that uh, that people are going to be joining us and we're going to give them, oh, we got a couple people. We're going we're gonna to give people time to, uh, we won't do anything too important. But, um, but this is like the important face-off of the day, don't you think? Absolutely. Nice to be with you, Vicki. I'm really glad you're here, Denny. Yeah, I've me been, too. Uh, looking forward to this for a long time. And, me too. Uh, it breaks the monotony of the COVID. So I want to talk to you about that because I lead the COVID crazies. How, what, how, okay, now I just heard, is this true, that you and your wife have been married for 53 years? Almost 54. Thanksgiving is 54. That is Unbelievable. And you're yeah, so I'm happy a, I'm and loved. I'm the luckiest guy on the planet. You she are. hasn't figured it out yet that I'm damaged good. <laughs> you are the luckiest guy on the planet. That is, that's extraordinary. So I'm going to ask you how you met and all of that, but let's get back to the COVID question first. How, how are you guys? Michelle, is your wife's name Michelle? Am I getting that right? Monique. Monique. Oh, God. Monique, yeah. Jesus. How are you? Well, she'll probably come running now. Anytime I call I, her name, she's coming I, well, I, would, I would love to meet her. I was actually going to ask you if I could meet no, her She's before. not camera ready. She's All COVID right. ready. She's COVID ready. So how have you guys been, um, how have you guys been handling the pandemic? Well, you know, thank God we have, a, we have a nice home in the big backyard and a swimming pool. And nice. we have total privacy around it. So uh, it's not bad. She does most of the she does 99% of the grocery shopping and stuff like that because mm -hmm. I'm a little more vulnerable than she is and uh, you know we've you know we've had a few flare-ups I must say even after 53 years that can happen but you know it's it's it tests your patience this this darn thing of having every day run into another day and it's the same thing and what she, what series can we watch tonight? And how many, I, I, we've gone through so many TV series, I don't really remember any of them, you know. But then again, that's when I smoked so much pot, man, in my lifetime growing up. I mean, I, I could go watch a movie and by the time you got home from it, they'd say, how did that movie end? And I'd say, geez, I don't remember. You know, uh, Danny, I'm glad you brought that up because pot was my drug, drug of choice and I yeah. haven't. I haven't smoked any in almost 20 years, but um, I, I know that we share a, uh, a program of recovery. Yeah. And uh, so we're leaving COVID for a minute. We'll come back. Uh, do, what was your bottom? What, what got you sober? Oh, I was drinking a whole bunch. I mean, and I used to work at a place called Residuals. Okay. In Valley, which uh -huh. is an actor's bar. And I, they asked me to bring music in. And so I brought music in. And at the end, uh, the, the 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 guy that ran the place said, "I can't pay you what you're worth, so why don't you just uh, come in and drink what you whatever you want, keep a bar tab, buy some of the regulars." And I used to just get hammered there every day, and and I knew that I couldn't stop drinking, and so it was it was just time to just give it up. And along with the drinking went all the other stuff, you know, because I used you know 
musicians as part of our world, a little, little bit of marching or editing powder, they used to call it. And, and Sumbara wanted to keep the, uh, the, the creative channels open and stuff like it. It's all bullshit is all it is, really. But uh, my bottom was I, I just got sick and tired of not being able to quit. And I knew I was damaging my health, my career, and my marriage she did not like it did you did you ever miss a gig were you did you ever fuck no. up a gig being stoned no, no. you're I, I played i used to do a lot of the big movie soundtracks mm -hmm. and one of the guys caught me uh i, I was like a 110 piece symphony orchestra and this music <laughs> is very difficult and some guy uh, caught me out in the parking lot having a hit before we were i said are you crazy i said no i focus so much better <laughs> so I did. It allowed me to focus in because, you know, when, when you're on the, on the spot like that, if you screw up, man, it could be the end of your work. So, uh, so, yeah, so you I would get high work. before a, you got high before work, before a gig? Not, not high. I'd catch a little buzz. It was basically just to focus in a little deeper, you know? <laughs> okay. So tell me if this is true for you, Denny. I have found that I thought I was more creative. I thought I was a better writer. I thought I was funnier when I was stoned. It turns out it was crap. And that when I got sober, the work got so much better. Yeah. Have you found that to be true? Yeah, those 11, those, those, those two o'clock in the morning ideas that were so great, write it down the next morning. Oh, that was shit, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I'll never forget when I did get sober though, uh, uh, the first night that I played my drums with nothing in me. Yeah. First night, first night and residuals. We used to go in the alley and pick, 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 you know, and yeah, yeah. play. But I sat down behind the drum set and I, I, I thank God for my life and, and the talent that he gave me. And uh, I thank him for what he gave me and what he took away. And, you know, and I really, and that was a very memorable night in my life that I, so, that I still had that gift that he had given me. So was, the moment before you made the decision, like, did you wake up one morning and say, okay, I'm done? Was it in the middle of a day? How did you get sober? What was the getting sober like for you? Uh, well, I had just made a decision that I was going to stop drinking mm -hmm. uh, be because I was drinking so much. And, and I, sh you know, I really shouldn't be drinking because I had a little heart experience a few mm -hmm. years in 86 and I quit drinking in 91 so 86 I had an angioplasty done uh, because I, I drank a little too much and I did a little too much drugs and all that right and I died on the table while I was what? doing it yeah it, it, it's, it happens once in a while <laughs> but uh, you know died for a hot minute hit the other side came back and so this wait do you have any memory of that yeah sure Oh, come on, tell. You have to tell. Was there a well, white light? Like to, I don't like to talk about it because it was beautiful. And, oh, okay. Uh, it was just really, you know, here you're awake for a hospital procedure and all of a sudden you're gone, but you're warm and fuzzy and everything's golden and beautiful. And uh, so I don't like to talk about that because... I respect that. You know, some people that, that are thinking about the alternative to living, uh, I just hate to be able to say anything that might influence the way they've felt about it you know i respect that but okay. anyway it was yeah. it was a beautiful feeling and i and i got through it and I, and I was supposed to really take it easy right or risk having some serious health issues and i did for four or five years but when you're really stuck into alcoholism and uh, 
you have the disease of it, it's, it's, it keeps telling you you don't have a disease. And after a while, uh, the feelings come back and then you drink at them. And that, that's what it was with me. That was my bottom. I was tired of drinking at my feelings. I wanted to do something about it. How hard was it for you to get sober? Easy. Really? How so? Stupid easy. Really? I just, I just checked into a 12-step recovery program and I started going to meeting and hanging with people and I was safe. I just wow. felt at home. The minute I walked in there, I just felt at home and uh, it was it was beautiful. That's, that's quite an endorsement. And, and January uh, the 2nd, uh, it'll be 30 years for me. Wow, Danny. That's amazing. Thank you for blazing the path. Yeah. Um, it's the only place where you get applause for running out of a burning building. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, if you're a fireman, I think you get applause for running out of a building. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think there's two places where that happens. Okay, so let's go back to the COVID thing. Yeah. How, so you and Monique, do you, do you have other people in your bubble? Have you seen other people? Are you reclusive? How have you handled it? Well, thank God we have those Zoom meetings that we're on now, and yes. I do quite a bit of those. I mean, yes. I speak at a lot of 12-step uh, recovery meetings, and, and I've spoken in Hawaii and Boston and Panama and all over the planet, you know, Scotland, mm -hmm. for Christ. Um, but a lot of it is, is, it really takes up a lot of your time and reminds, reminds you that you have a disease that needs uh, attention. So these Zoom meetings really help. And we do go out maybe once a week or something. We'll take a little drive, go up the coast and, you know, breathe some, some uh, beach air. And uh, maybe once in a great while, we'll go out to a, a restaurant where you can eat outdoors. But we've only done that several times in the seven months. How, how I haven't done that yet. Do you feel safe when you do that? Do you feel okay? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I'll look for a place that... Where, where there's not too many people and you're definitely not indoors, outdoors. Right, right. Um, okay, and you've, you've I, I haven't been in a, in a store in seven months, but um, but yeah, it's, I miss that. I've been ordering everything in and, um, but so you're, you're basically staying out of stores yourself because of pre-existing. Yeah, well, I, I've got a couple of things that, that doctors told me I shouldn't take any chances. <laughs> Uh, good idea. And it's lovely that you have Monique to be willing to do that. For you. And I'm sure she's very careful when she does it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Gloves, gloves, mask, and the whole deal. I mean, she'll say, are you going to get gas here? Put some gloves on when you touch that pump. You know? I said, yeah, okay. But I don't. So we're not going to stay in this for more than a minute or two, but I just wanted to uh, check in on the fact uh, today we're about to, as we're on early because... We are ahead of the um, of the great debate, right. which they of are the, saying of the comedy show for tonight. You know, <laughs> I I hope I'm. What, what do you feel? What do you think is going to happen? Do you have any feelings? Oh, I hope she buries them. So I. <laughs> I just hope that she she puts on her, her big girl panties and just knocks his dick in the dirt, man. Knocks his dick he in the dirt. Just, I like it. Uh, he's just a useless piece of crap that that puts up with all of that stuff that our president is, is spouting. And he's a, he's a puppet that follows behind him. And I don't have any time for that. No time whatsoever. It's ridiculous. It's pretty horrific that he's been exposed up close and personal and he is refusing to have plexiglass around him. He is refusing to allow safety to the people. In the, I mean, 
Kamala will be behind the plexiglass, but they said it's not, it doesn't stop the aerosolize. You even asking that. That's, that's so stupid. I mean, and, and this, uh, you know, I grew up in an America in the 50s where back east, uh, this is not the America that I grew up in. It really isn't, and it just breaks my heart every day that I, I, I really keep from watching TV. I can't watch too much news because it just breaks my heart. It's, um, it's absolutely shocking that I call him the idiot. Um, he is parading around and saying how COVID was no big deal, and he feels great, and, and, and there's no problem, and... Um, Last night, Nick Cadera, the, the Broadway actor who died uh, after being in a coma for a few months, he was 41 in perfect health. They had to amputate his leg. He has a young wife and baby. And his, his, his widow got on there and said, you know, started crying on Chris Cuomo last night. Like, what a, what a disrespect. What a, how can you talk this way when seven and a half million people have, have had this and they don't have steroids and they don't have the magic cocktail and they don't have all this stuff. And he's just parading around, putting everybody in the in the White House at risk. I think and they're over. High. And he's, he's high too. Everybody says that those those combinations that they have given, they don't know what it does to you. But yeah. you're certainly not 100% clear in your thinking. Absolutely. He didn't he didn't start out 100% clear in his thinking. <laughs> <Jeez>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's. But my wife is French, you know, so we hear what the Europeans side of this whole thing is. They think he's a monster. They cannot believe what has happened to this country that saved them from World War II. Mm -hmm. Nobody can. So anyway. Well, they're finally saying, uh, it, it finally looks like he's getting trounced in the polls. At last, it looks like even some of his own supporters are yeah. switching sides. Well, I don't it won't surprise me if they use every method possible to cheat his way back in, because I think I think the big fear is if he if he doesn't get reelected, he'll be held accountable. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, he's going to go to jail. Jail cell. Him and his whole damn family. All of those people have made money off, off of dead people in America. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I can't talk about it. All right. So we're having a good time till we brought no, this so, so we're gonna have we're gonna have some more fun. So yeah. we're, we're gonna we're gonna leave that behind, and yeah. uh, we can get to the serious stuff after. And hopefully, it'll be a big victory celebration when Kamala does does damage. Um, so, Danny, so let's talk about you. So, speaking of the America that you grew up with, I know you were in the service. Did you um, were you part of the lottery system? Did you pull a low number? What happened? You no, know, I was about to be drafted, but it was kind of in my plans. I was just a big screw up in school. Really. Uh, I was, I had too much fun in high school. <laughs> How did you have so much fun? Well, I, I just didn't take it seriously. I wanted to get out of school and get a gig. You, okay, so you started playing music really early. Like I know at five, you were playing drums. Your dad got you a drum. When did you start, uh, when did you start playing in bands? Well, I was, uh, I was five when I used to play and he put me in a band association in my hometown. Uh, you could join for like 50 cents a week and play with other kids your age, play oh, marches, wow. and learn how to read music. And I, when I was seven, mm -hmm. so by the time I was 13, I read every piece wow. of literature written for drums. And so I was really, I started working in bands when I was 13, playing uh, clubs, you know, a couple of Saturday night, Friday, sometimes two, three nights a week sometimes. Uh -huh. and, um, so that was a lot of fun. And then I heard about this. I was really bad with a, 
I was smart, but I didn't want to apply myself. So I flunked the 11th grade. They asked me to come back a year and do it again. So I can show all the kids coming up behind me how to have that much fun before leaving high school. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I did, but then it was, it was about to be, I was this, I graduated in 62. So they were about to grab me for Vietnam. And I said, Ooh, no thanks. And I arranged for a Washington DC uh, audition at the Navy School of Music. And if I knew that if you got in there, you would get uh, just about a, a college education in music and right. you could serve your time in there. You had to spend an extra year instead of three of these four years. But mm -hmm. let me try this. That, that seems like a great alternative to carrying a gun. So, <laughs> yeah. And you're guaranteed to just play music. So I went past the audition with Flying Colors, accepted, bang, went in. So I did my service four years, one month, 17 days, 11 hours and 39 minutes. <laughs> You're but, counting. Oh, my God. That was fun. It was okay. Learned so was, was it school the whole time? Or did you enter no. the troops? No, no, no. What did you guys do? Went to boot camp, went straight to school. And in school, I was there about a year, close to a year, I think. And they sent a cream of the crop band down to South America, down the East Coast and up the West Coast. And we mm -hmm. did uh, concert tours like park concerts, uh, radio stations, TV, local TV stations. Uh, we just entertained uh, the people down there and gave uh, little kits out like uh, first aid kits and stuff to the, to the schools and the kids and stuff. So it was an information tour set up by the United States Information Service. While the, the Navy part, they were teaching the other navies how to do anti-submarine warfare. Wow. In fact, I'll never forget this. In 1963, I was on our ship and we're playing uh -huh. on the side of the ship for a Colombian Navy ship across the way. You know, like 30, 40 yards over. There's, we're ships going 30 miles an hour in the water. Wow. High lining. They have a line across that transfers weapons and, and, and artillery and, uh, and ammunition and stuff like that. Little, like a little steel cage they put, or you put a person in there too. So they're, they're suspended and the water's going by between the two ships. And all of a sudden, this, this Colombian Navy ship gets closer and closer until the Admiral saw what was going on and he sounded the collision arm, alarm and they cut the cables, the, you know, the ropes between the two ships and, and we, we pulled off. At that very second, we got the message that John Kennedy had just been shot. Oh my God. And I saw these old timers, these old Navy salts I was like 19 or something. These guys were, were in tears. Everybody, it was a very eventful day. I'll never forget it. Wow, I bet. I mean, I think we all remember where we were. I know I do, but um, but that's quite a place to be. Yeah. President, uh, wow. Um, did all activities stop for? Yeah. Yeah, we were put on the 30-day moratorium. So we were, we'd gone down the East Coast, down Brazil, went down to, uh, tip of uh, South America. We were coming up the West Coast when that happened. So we just came back through the Panama Canal and went back and it just made it shortened the tour by a month or something like that. But uh, after that, I was sent to Chicago for I was there for a year. And uh, that was nice outside the Great Lakes. I had a big band up there with 60, 60 guys. So wow, that was fun. We did a lot of concerts and parades and all kinds of Americana. And then my last job, I was stationed in the Admiral with a Sixth Fleet, uh, had a, a band for, for uh, you know, occasions like where the King of Greece would come aboard or 
Uh, they would have some dignitaries from around the world. And uh, we were stationed in the south of France on the French Riviera. Is that how you met your wife? That's how I met my wife. Wow. I didn't know I was in the Navy because I had civilian clothes and I had an apartment in Nice, France. And I went to the ship once every four days to say hello when we were in home port. Not a bad way to be in the service. Yeah, that was good. So did I'm curious, did anybody else that played with you back in, in the service uh, make good the way you did in music? Uh, there was a jazz guy right ahead of me, Bill Watrous. Mm -hmm. Bill was a trombone player. He just passed away in the last couple of years, but he made a big name for himself in the jazz world. Nice. But other than that, I didn't hear of it. And oh, there was, my teacher from the Navy School of Music was a drummer who ended up in Nashville. He spent 20 years in the Navy, retired, went to Nashville, became a session guy. His name was Kenny Malone. Still alive, still great, great drummer. Uh, fantastic. He wrote, he played on tons of records you would know, but one of his favorite, the favorite records I remember of him was, he played on Dobie Gray's, I Wanna Get Lost in Your Rock and Roll. Wow, away, good way. Yeah, it was a great, so he's, he's uh, made a name for himself, but uh, I was lucky. I was lucky. I got out of the Navy, went to New York, met all my heroes, and got a gig in a jazz club. Uh, okay, we're going to talk about jazz. It, was it Paul Williams' brother that, I know Paul Williams' brother wrote a hit song, and I think it was Drift Away. Is that the one that he wrote? Do you know? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not... I, I, anyway, I, I think he might have written that. Okay, so I know jazz is your, where you come from. Was yeah. your father a great jazz enthusiast? Is that why you got directed that way? Yeah, he, well, big bands, not so much of the, 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 the modern uh, type jazz, but yeah, he was, he, play, he actually played from, uh, my area in Pennsylvania is close to Lansford, Pennsylvania, where the Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey came from. So oh, wow. The Dorsey brothers started in my area. My dad actually played with them for a short time before they made it big. Okay, what did your dad play? Drums. Your dad was a drummer. Okay. So when I was three, he used to take me, there was a place called the Flagstaff up in, in Mockchunk, Pennsylvania. No, you have to stop, because we're gonna talk about the Catskills, because my thought, okay, I know you played the Catskills, but not that oh, flag. Okay. okay. Oh, that was the flag. There was a, t a little town four mm -hmm. miles from my town called uh -huh. Today, it's called Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. I know Jim Thorpe. Wait, what was your town called? Lee Heighton. Do you know where Easton is? Is it near Easton? Yeah, it's okay. 20 miles from Easton. Okay. But, uh, Jim Thorpe mm -hmm. uh, was, in the, in the beginning, in the, in the turn of the century, it was Mock Chunk, M-A-U-C-H, Chunk, C-H-U-N-K. And there were, it was like a gorge, and it was a beautiful, uh, setting and there were 13 registered millionaires in that town at the turn of us of the 1900s wow. because there were all railroad magnets the coal mines and the railroad magnets and so uh yeah it was just uh, incredible and my dad used to play up the top of this mountain there was a an, uh, just a great big like a round club uh where big bands used to come in and uh, i sat there and watched him play when i was three years old you know so i was smitten <laughs> And so, and your father did this for a living. That was his gig. That's no. what he did. No, no, no. he he, uh, he kind of did it for a living. But when I was born, he, he got a straight gig because <laughs> I had a brother and a sister, and they came a couple of years. You know, he just wanted to be be responsible, and and he he got the regular gig and played music on the weekends. And did he did he continue to play throughout his life? 
Uh, he did uh, to a point, to a point. Then, then uh, that kind of started to get dried up, and and I was around the age where I could start picking up some of that work, you know. So I used to get some. It's not that they didn't call him; they called me. But um, yeah, he gave it up just before I, was, I turned a teenager, I guess. And obviously, and he got to see you have great success, I assume. Yeah. Oh, one of the most. Mo this is Americana, but my little town had a band shell in the park in mm -hmm. the center of the town. Of course. And there was a, we both played, my kid brother plays drums too. My kid brother, Daryl, mm -hmm. he became the band director at Jim Thorpe High School. And he was, he retired from that after many years of being, you know. But one day in the park concert, mm -hmm. we had my father, my uncle Eddie, uh, who was also a percussionist, Mm -hmm. my brother and me in the percussion section with like a 40-piece uh, marching band in concert formation. Yeah, it was really a trip. It was, wow, did anybody you know, film it, like it or is that Wyatt, before? Yeah, Andrew Wyatt painting or something. It was really... Wow. Cool. Do, you have, do you have at least photographs of it or...? I do. I do. There's, there's one on my website, actually, of that band, of the wow. kids' band, not, not the, the men's band, but my hometown. <laughs> They, they just built a bench in that park that overlooks the uh, van shell uh, in my honor and put my face. Oh, <laughs> it's not much of a town. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. That is the sweetest. It's, it's, it's a very sweet story. It really is. That's it's a wonderful. Kid, it was bad, you know. Like, <laughs> oh, I I love that story. Okay, so. I know that uh, that you played in the Catskills. So, and at the Browns in Lockshaw, my father was the master of ceremonies at the Green Acres Hotel in wow. Lockshaw, which yeah. is where I spent every summer of my life, uh, which is crazy. So the Catskills were quite a scene. So I was there in the '60s until the very early '70s. When were you there? Uh, actually, we got married '66, '66, and beginning of '67. Okay, so that's I was there. But yeah, I loved it. It was fun. Played Browns Hotel, and then uh, and Jerry Lewis was like the name of the Browns Hotel. That was his I deal. I thought he owned it. I thought that was. I his think story. he did own. I don't know if he was a figurehead or really an owner, but it was his Years deal. Later, I moved over to Tamament in the Poconos. Sure. And to Mount Airy Lodge. Oh yeah. Uh, so I, I got a, a good dose of that. But when I was at at uh, Mount Airy, uh, who were the hell? Oh. The singer, Jane Morgan, mm -hmm. came through, and she brought uh, like a full big band and, and a string section along when she performed. And she kind of liked the way I played, and she hired me to go out as her personal drummer and do some dates with her. So I played Concord and Grow Singers. And, <laughs> you know, we had play a singer, dance team, and a comedian every night. But when I was with, with an act like Jane Morgan, and her husband was Jerry Weintraub, the film mogul, Mm -hmm. So uh, it was pretty nice, you know. The pay was better, and I only had to do one show with one person and uh, travel in limos and get some of the glamorous life, you know. So you got to play with all those at with Freddie Roman and like Malzy Lawrence and all. Did you did you play with all those guys for uh, open? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot, I really did. Those were really fun days. Yeah, uh, they sure not, were. Uh, okay, so. And were you playing jazz? And it, were you playing? You playing? Well, yeah, it was, it was, no, it wasn't jazz. You know, jazz. You, you know, you don't work if you play jazz. So no, you you played the music <laughs> of the day that was right. You know, Popular music. 
to read music and, and perform that type of a thing with no rehearsal sometimes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the comedians would come up and they'd give you a book and they'd say, just watch me, just watch me. I'll give you a cue when you go, broom, you know. <laughs> and it was so, I'll never forget the, what's his name, Myron Cohen. Oh, wow. Myron Cohen said, my wife's cooking so bad, pygmies come from Africa to dip their arrows in it. <laughs> Oh my God! So so oh I get so you were part of the house band that like played behind like Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet and stuff like that. Right. Uh, okay. So yeah. I remember one night there was a show that came up from New York, and a big cast, twenty people, let's say, and mm-hmm. I'm sitting at the back of the stage on the right with the drums, and there's a door there with the backstage, so they'd go on and off stage in the front, and they'd come over to this room in the back, and the girls would just strip down to nothing, and put another outfit on, you know. So I'm sitting there facing outward. The door's over here to the right. My music is to the left. And I have to watch the music because they're dancers. And I got to catch all of this stuff, you know, and the, com- the right. computer's over here. But I did the whole thing like this, watching them change. And the conductor said, what the hell happened to you, Danny? You were such a good drummer, but you messed that show up terrible. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, Snuffy says hi. I just saw Snuffy's on. Oh, beautiful. And uh, Toby, Toby Simons is screaming hello and thank you for your service. And she's a big fan. She sees you all the time at, at the write-off room. Um, so, okay, so how did you go from playing the Catskills? Ja- I imagine you were playing some jazz clubs in the city yeah. in the off-season. Well, no, I, I, I've had a couple of sessions in New York, but I wasn't plugged in yet. Uh, how did, sessions, how did sessions start for you? How did you break into that world? That was a guy named Russ Savakis, who was a contractor, mm-hmm. and he lived in the Poconos. So he was called in one night uh, when our bass player had something, couldn't make it. Uh, so Russ came in, and uh, he got to play with me, and we did a show, and he says, wow, you know, you're pretty good, man. I, I could get you a lot of work in New York if you moved into the city. And I said, yeah, right. you know. <laughs> but... Uh, Everybody said to me, you know what, this guy can get you, get you started. So he took me, I met him the next week and uh, he took me to a recording studio and he showed me how it works in New York. And I went, oh, I can do that. And then I, I went back to the Poconos and then I heard that Al Cohn and Zoot Sims uh, needed a drummer, that their drummer, Mousy Alexander, was leaving to go on a road. Mousy Alexander. This was a guy named Dave Frischberg told me about this. Dave is, you know, my attorney, Bernie, and I'm hip and all those great songs he wrote. (laughs) So Dave and I were working up at one of the resorts and and I I just love Dave. He said, go down, man, tell Zoot that you're a friend of mine. Sit in, I bet you get the gig. So I went, okay. So I drive down from the Poconos and I, hey, Zoot, I'm a friend of Dave Frischberg. He said that I should come down and sit in with you. You might need a drummer one day. And he goes, oh, any friend of Dave Frischberg? He said, oh, I didn't say drummer. That's right. He said, what do you play? I said, I'm a drummer. He says, oh, I hate drummers. <laughs> <laughs> so he let me sit in, and uh, and I got the gig that night. So the gig was at the half note. Uh-huh. And the half note that was down at Hudson and Spring, and it only paid $100 a week for the house rhythm section. What year was this? 67 or 8. It was a long time ago. Did you live on a hundred dollars a week in '67? No. No. <laughs> no, but we did. Don't yeah. know how we did it. I remember we had a place at 19 West 69th Street, right off the park. 
Wow. And it cost $215 a month. A big one bedroom. It was great. Wow. And my wife got a job and I, 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 I don't know how we did it. And I had a car and I used to have to do alternate side parking and everything. But being at the half note there six nights a week, the gang would come down and they'd say, who's the new kid in town? And I started getting calls for the recordings, the jingles in the morning and the afternoon, record dates in the evening and stuff. And so pretty soon I'm sending uh, subs into my, my, my gig that doesn't pay much and I'm starting to make a lot of money. Mm. And that, that's how the whole thing with, you know, I was making, my first record was uh, with Billy, uh, no, oh, the, oh, geez, Chad Mitchell trio, uh, John Denver. Wow. John Denver's solo album, this was Milt Oaken was his producer, I'll never forget it, and it was at RCA, a great studio in New York at the time, and it was my, like my first big rock and roll uh, record date, and I met all the guys, and the guys that do that, it's a small club, they, they just liked the way I carried myself and the way I, I performed, and then uh, I was involved with a guy named Joe Beck, a guitar player, we had a band with Roger Calloway and Tom Scott and Chuck DeMonico, and we made a record with J.J. Johnson and uh, Kai Winding, the two trombone players, a jazz record that kind of crossed over into the pop world a little bit. Uh -huh. That record is still one of their biggest selling records. And wow. Yeah, it's called Betwixt and Between, and it's really a good record with it. It's a Creed Taylor CTI uh, album with strings and the whole deal on it. It's, it was really a nice record. So it kind of opened the door to a lot of stuff for me. And that pretty soon I'm doing a, <coughs> a couple of records every week with, with different people, you know. And it was a lot of fun because every time you go to work, it's a small nucleus of people that can do that job. Right. Because they have to trust you. They're spending a lot of money, not just on you, but on the whole situation. So they, they got to have people that can do the job and do it well. So I, I imagine that a lot of that is word of mouth, that if you get the gig, you recommend a guitarist, a guitarist recommends you, all that's going on. Right. Hugh McCracken, for example, uh, when I was working with, uh, with Paul, uh, Paul hired me to do the Ram album. Well, I, Paul who? Pray tell. Oh, Paul, you know, John, uh, one of my... Uh, Just a little beetle. One of my old buddies out here... Uh, Paul Humphreys, he used to play on the Lawrence Welk show, drummer. He said, you playing with that Charlie McCarthy guy again? <laughs> he always used to make fun of him. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, you know, it was, I was working with Paul. We did the Ram album. <clears throat> and oh, wait, I, let's talk about how that uh, happened. But by the way, Alan Rosenberg is on here. Do you know Alan's a wonderful actor? And uh, hi, Alan. I'm glad to see that you're on here. Um, anyway, um, so how did... I assume that the Paul thing happened through somebody recommending you. Is that? Yeah, there was a guy named, <clears throat> excuse me, Barry Gort of Kornfeld. It was a folky around New York. Mm -hmm. And he had his finger on the pulse of the recording scene in New York, big time. He knew all the right guys, you know. So when Paul came to town, he knew him for some reason or other. And Paul said, uh, could I get a list of drummers uh, that do all of the best work in town? And luckily my name was on that list. I don't know the 10 or 12 guys. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when I got the call from uh, Radio Registry was our answer service, Judson 28800. <laughs> I'll never forget Talking it. about how it was letters yeah. and a number. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah. and it had we had a phone in a bar on Fifty Fifth Street, Jim and Andy's bar, where all the studio cats would hang out. It was right, right in the middle of all the studios. So you right. go in there and cash a check, get a drink, have something to eat, buy some dope, whatever you need. <laughs> you know, it was, it was, there's a great- And you could get your calls in the bar. Oh yeah. It. And, and, and there was a book written about it called Meet Me at Jim and Andy's by Gene Lees. It's worth the read. It's, it was a, it was a time in history that'll never be. So Jimmy- Wait, Jimmy, before you go on, Tony, uh, Tony Vincent just asked if you, if you've ever written your story, have you ever written a book? No. That day is coming, Denny. That's the last nail in the coffin. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Anyway. No, I, I, I would like to do it because I, no, I have so much. I bet. Kulaveris was the guy that owned the bar. And people would say, you know, somebody come in and we didn't know him. They said, do you know who Andy is? And they'd say, oh, sure, I'm good friends with Andy. Andy was Jimmy's cat. So we knew that was full <laughs> of shit, you know. <laughs> but uh, uh, Jimmy used to knock on the door, the men's room door. Say steaks are ready, and about eighteen guys would come out wiping their noses and stuff. <laughs> oh, it was really a just a brilliant place. But anyway, I turned you off. You know, it's the way it goes. It's always I something. It off. I can't believe it. So um, anyway, Billy Amandello Amandello says, "How's my friend Baxter?" <laughs> Billy Amandola is my dear friend from Brooklyn. And I, you know, you gotta say good things about him or he'll just have your legs broken. <laughs> <laughs> now, Billy and Chris, the two of our dearest friends in life and uh, Baxter's my cat. Baxter's your he's, cat. He's, he's oh. a big fluffy cat, you know. I walk into the room and he, he leaves. But anyway, oh. <laughs> oh, look at you and T-Bear's on now. Hey, T-Bear. Yeah, this, I can't believe this. Um. Uh, Vincent asks if you were ever on this on a session with Lee Sklar. I assume you guys must have worked together. Oh yeah, a lot of a lot of sessions. Yeah, I love Lee, and in fact, I watched his show with you, and um, I thought that was just tremendous. If if only Lee could speak up about how he feels in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Lee's gone to Facebook jail more times than I can count. They just keep throwing him in jail. And as a matter of fact, we're talking about Paul. After you give us the the little story about starting, yeah. we I, I want you to do what we are going to, what you're going to do for us uh, after we tell this little story. So, tell uh, so Barry, this yeah. all this list. And so we don't know, we don't know that you're going to meet Paul or any of that stuff. I get a phone call from Judson to 8800, my radio registry. And they say, you've just had a call for a demo and you just had a little job cancel. So it's at the same time, do you want to do a demo for Barry Kornfeld? And I said, yeah, I haven't seen Barry in a long time. So let me, yeah, sure, I'll do it. What's the address? They give me this address. It's like on on west of 9th Avenue on 43rd Street or something, a funky neighborhood. Back in the day, that wasn't yeah. a nice place. <laughs> no, it wasn't a nice. And it was a brownstone. It looked like it was going to be renovated or something. There was nothing, in, no electricity. I, don't, I said, wow. oh, this isn't right. Mm -hmm. So I walk up the steps and there's a... a a desk in the lot in the lobby there and there's a guy sitting there i said is there a studio here he, he points to the basement i said oh shit i'm gonna get mugged so i walked down to the basement there's paul and linda in a ratty dirt floor basement with a set of drums sitting in the middle of the room they're sitting over in the corner of the room i said hey you're paul mccartney he goes yeah i know that said, what's going on here he said well you know um we're looking, we're, we're looking at some drummers. We're going to make a record here. Do you mind playing for us? 
And I said, no, I don't mind. You got a guitar or something? Play with me? He said, no, just you. Wow. Oh, I see. Well, I guess if you can't get it on by yourself, how can you get it on with somebody else? You know. <laughs> he liked that, I think. So we laughed. And I said, what do you want to hear? He said, just play some rock and roll. So I, actually, I sat down. Wait, and I, so what do you play for Paul McCartney? I just did Ringo. You know, I was just getting, went nuts a little bit, hit the tom-toms and just rocked out a little bit. He liked it. He said, okay, play some sh some shuffle, some this, some that. I played a couple of different kind of beats for him. Mm -hmm. And we, we had a little interaction. It was very nice. He liked my vibe. And you could see that I could handle myself uh, behind the drum kit. So uh, he said, great, that's all I need. Um, you, you know, thank you. Thanks for coming by. I went, wow, really pleased to meet you both. And I walked out of there thinking I'll never, you know, that's a treat. That's I'm, I was used to meeting a lot of big people, but not Paul McCartney, not a Beatle, not a band especially, you know. So anyway, I go home. I forget about it, and then I go into Jim and Andy's, and I hear, oh, yeah, Bill Lavornia and Ronnie Zeta and Bernard Purdy and all, all of these top cats, they're all down there doing that same thing. Wow. They're telling people that they weren't, you know. It's one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got called in on that too, but I'll never get it. You can't listen to it. Three days later, the phone rings. Says, Hello, this is Paul. I went, Paul. Oh, stop. He called you himself? Oh, yeah. Paul who? <laughs> <laughs> he said, you, you played for me. The, oh, that Paul. <laughs> wow. We always have fun together. I mean, that's part of why he hired me, I'm sure. He said, I'd like to, uh, to hire you for this record that I'm about to do. And I want you to, I want to, we want to do it like banker's hours, nine to five, six to five days a week, you know, Monday through Friday. I said, he said, can you do that? And I said, uh, give me a second. Let me take a look at my book. <laughs> so I jumped in the air, you know, I threw everything up in the air. <laughs> yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> Where do you want to go? Yeah, so anyway, we got the information down and we did it at CBS 52nd Street and uh, beautiful studio, Columbia Studios there. So in the meantime, you'll love this. Frankie Bolito that owned from uh, Pro Drum in New York over on 8th Avenue calls me up and he says, hey, Denny, I was, a, I was a hot shit already. I was doing well in that world, you know. Right. He said, hey, the, uh, the Beatles drum kit that Ringo played at Shea Stadium is at this Museum of Famous People in New York. They're going out of business. They're having an auction and I'm gonna go bid on a drum set. Would you be interested? Because I don't no, stop it, because I saw a picture of you with that drum kit and I thought that was a setup. Don't you tell me that you have that drum kit. I don't, I did. What? I use it on the Ram album. Okay, so wait, tell the rest of the story. <laughs> Frank, Frank says, I want the snare drum, but you can have the bass drum and the two tom-toms and the bass drum had the Beatles head. You know? Right. So anyway, I, uh, I said, great. I mean, I'm not a, uh, I don't think, I'm not a millionaire, but you know, let's see what they cost. So he went to the auction. He calls me up. He says, I got him. I got him, man. You can have the two toms and the bass drum for 300 bucks. I went, what? You gotta be kidding me. So I said, oh. I went down, picked them up. Beatles had and everything. So I had my father's snare drum and that Beatles drum set and, and, uh, Paul walks into the studio for the first day of the Ram album. He goes, hey, man, nice to see you again. Is that your drums? And he, <laughs> never when he saw the Beatles head on the drums all set up, ready to go. 
Oh my so God. Just, we just went, e you know, wow. it, was, it was so beautiful. And uh, the, the first, well, Dave Spinoza started the, the record as a, the first guitar player. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he asked Dave to, to block out his time for a couple of weeks too. And, and Dave found out that he, at the end of the day, he would cut us loose. So he, he was starting to book a couple of dates for four o'clock and stuff like that. And Paul did not like that. And he said, so after the first time that that happened, Paul he said, hey, do you got another guitar player you work with? And that's when I said, well, I do like this other guy, Hugh McCracken. I make a lot of records with him too. So, so you called Huey in and uh, Huey was perfect for it. I mean, Uncle Albert and all of those songs that were just uh, so, that made that Ram album so special. So between the two of them though, I still mess with Spinoza whenever I see him. I said, oh, there's Paul's half a guitar player. <laughs> did that, I imagine that's turned into one of his life's big regrets that he did. Yeah, I would imagine. Well, no, he worked with Lennon. He's worked with, he, he, did, he didn't need Paul on his resume. He really didn't. He, he's a tremendous musician, tremendous guy, and mm -hmm. a real nutcase. I, I love him for all, for all three of those things, too. Great guy, great guy. So while we're on Paul, um, you, you, we've worked out something that you're going to do for us that you do with your with uh, the Denny Sywell Trio that you're going to play. Well, for you us. know what? We might do something a little different. Okay, I'm 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 riding your wave. Whatever you want to do. Since we were just talking about Ram, you know, okay. next year, 2021, is the 50th anniversary of Ram. It's so insane. I can't believe that. Insane. And so anyway. Uh, one of those songs from Ram was a song called Uncle Albert. <laughs> and why don't I just kick it I, up here and play along to it? Oh, my, my little jazz kit in the background here. I am loving that. Let's do that. If, if it works, uh, we're, we're going to ask technology to do us a favor. And, and uh, here we go. Hang, hang on. I, I'm, I'm wondering if I have to give you permission no, you're just going to do it there. I'm, you're not sharing your screen. We're good. Yeah, I'm not streaming. Uh, and, and the track, you probably will hear a little of the track just to keep me honest. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Okay. And I'm going to just turn my, uh, I guess you can see there's, I got a little. Yeah, we'll be able to see you uh, a little, a little lower. Drums a little bit. But, but it's, okay, well, we're good. And here we go with little Uncle Albert. Anytime. <laughs> We're so sorry, Uncle Albert. We're so sorry if we caused you any pain. We're so sorry, Uncle Albert.
<laughs> How's that? Did you hear everything? Yes, and it was so fun. Thank oh, you so much thank for you. doing that. We'll, we'll do some more music during this. That was yeah. so fun, Denny. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. And it was one of those things where uh, I know Ringo one night, I saw Ringo and he's just, oh yeah, you, you played that Uncle Albert thing where it goes into three different sections. I said, yeah, we did it in one take too. <laughs> You know, I was telling you before we went on the air that when I was looking up all your videos and I was finding such amazing uh, things on you and with Paul and with your trio, I came upon a video of John, George and Ringo at a party at John Lennon's house in New York in 1971. Uh, and they did the entire uh, Ram, they did the entire album and they knew every word. And John kept saying, sing it, Yoko, sing it. I mean, crazy. Wow, I got, I can't wait to see that. I know, it's crazy. That was, you know, that was during that little bad period uh, that Paul and John had. And um, a little after that, I moved to London and we formed Wings with Paul. And while we recorded the Wildlife album. And so I was in New York on a little vacation Paul asked me to go up to Sterling Sound and take the tapes from Apple, go up to Sterling Sound and master the record for the American release. Mm -hmm. Wow, really, you want me to do that? You don't want to do that yourself? He says, no, you can do it. Just make it sound good and fat. <laughs> They're great up at this studio, George, George, I think Martinelli or something like that was his name. Uh -huh. So uh, he was the mastering king in New York. Sterling Sound, that was the name of it. So I picked up the tapes and I, I went up to sit with this this engineer and we mastered the record. He said, when you're done, take them to Apple. So I go down to Apple's offices in New York and John and Yoko are there. Oh, wow. So this, I walk in and go, oh, you're, you're John Lennon. Really nice to meet you. Plus, oh, you're Paul's new drummer, eh? Wow. That was it. And he walked away. No, <laughs> really? Broken. I, all I wanted to do was hang with, you know. Oh. Yeah. So anyway, I was, I just thought that he was a, uh, he was, this would be rude, but I thought that he was the balls of the Beatles. <laughs> you know, I just really wanted to meet him and it was just at a, at a, a poor time anyway in history and stuff, so anyway. Did they reconcile while you were still yeah. playing with Paul? They did. They, did. They, they were planning to do something together too, I think. <laughs> they were writing together secretly. I'm pretty sure of that, but uh, they were great friends. Come on. I. I, the last time I was in Liverpool was a couple of years ago for the Beatles 50th, we performed there and they took us on I a special. the videos, yeah. Yeah, we, with Mark Hudson and Joey Mullen and those guys. We had a great little band and um, we did a real nice tribute. And we all went over to uh, John Lennon's house, his uncle Mimi, Aunt Mimi's house anyway. Wow. And we were in this tiny little room, much smaller than my, my little studio here, uh, where Paul and... John sat on the bed and learned to play songs on their guitars. And it's just, you walk in and the vibe just hits you, you know. And then we're walking out of the house and they had a little foyer in front of the house, Aunt Mimi's house. And Mark goes, oh my God, listen to that. We go, what are you talking about, Mark? You crazy dog. So, and it was the echo that was in that little foyer was exactly the echo of Paul and John's voices on so many of those Beatle records. Oh yeah. It was one of those goosebumps moments. It was, it was phenomenal. Wow. Wow. So, okay. So tell me, uh, tell us about 
the first time you hit a major stage with Paul. What what was that experience like? Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was pretty deep. Uh, well, the first major gigs were in a university, though. Really? Yeah, we we set out unannounced, without a gig, without a hotel, nothing. We had a, an equipment truck, the two roadies, Ian and Trevor. We had a 12-passenger van with the wives, the kids, the dogs. And we just set out. We, we started driving up north, and we stopped at, uh, oh, I don't remember now. I think it was uh, something. In, anyway, we stopped at a university and went in and said, is there a place where we can put on a show? Well, the kids are having finals this week, so it might not be a good. He said, we got Paul McCartney in the van out there. Go, oh, okay. So they let us, and uh, we'd go find a hotel, and the roadies would set up the gear, and we'd come back that night, and they, I think the kids paid like a one pound or a pound and 25 pence to get, or even 75 pence to see a wings show. We did not, we sat up, the first one was in a, a lunchroom at the university, and I don't know how many people, kids were there, but we didn't have enough material to do a whole concert, you know. But this so is before you, you did the first album, the first Wings album? What, what, yeah. what was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or no, no, it was after that. It was right after the Wings album. Because the Wings album was just Danny Lane, and me, me and Danny and, the, and Paul and Linda. That was it. Henry wasn't even in the band yet. So we added Henry, so we had two guitar players and a, and a, a lead. And we did the university tour, which is 11 or 12 shows. I don't know, 10 or 11 shows. So the press wouldn't know about it because Paul was worried about everything being compared to the Beatles. Last right. Night. And we, we, we grew in as a band. Linda was really raw with her, her, her piano parts and vocals and stuff. You know, God bless her. It was really a role that I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And, yeah. and uh, so we, 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 it was so much fun. At the end of the night, man, we'd take the kid with the money box and throw him in the band with us and pull all the money out and go, one for you, one for you, one for you. <laughs> or pass out the money. And it was, uh, it, we'd stop at pubs and have chicken uh, no, not chicken. <laughs> have uh, cheese sandwiches, you know, cheese buddies and stuff like that, and play darts and have a pint. Okay, so wait, what's it like when you walk into a pub with Paul and Linda in the middle of no? I mean, what is that like? Well, Paul is just a kid from Liverpool, so he becomes the kid from Liverpool, and everybody respects that. Wow. You know, they don't. They don't. Uh, oh, there's a beetle. No, everybody, hey, Paul, Paul, you know, it's great, great stuff. Just, I have nothing but great fond memories. And we were like, we were like brothers. We had a great working relationship. We were family. We, Monique came on, on the road with us that tour. She came on the road with us, the European tour, which was 28 cities sold out cities 20,000 seaters okay so what is it like when you play like a madison square garden with paul or like where uh, i would I, imagine i never did i never had the uh, i only did uh, i did two britain tours the unannounced and, a, and a, the, the final tour was a, a big deal but uh the the tour tour in the middle was was the european tour so so in europe though you had to have the equivalent like what like an equivalent like major huge venue uh, we didn't really yeah. have that the biggest thing we had was like probably the night we got busted in uh, Gothenburg you know from some oh, tell us that story 
Oh, some fans sent some weed up, you know, and the cops caught it in the postal thing, and <coughs> they the they ruined an encore. It was twenty thousand people or so in, in a Scandinavian hall, a big round arena, uh-huh. and uh, they cut a PA cable. They came on stage and, and took Paul and Linda and me away. My name was on the damn package. I remember reading about that. That's uh, and uh, and. <laughs> It was just a fine, but it cost McCartney millions because he couldn't tour a lot of places in the world with that drug thing on his on his record. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it actually kept me out of a world tour with Bob Dylan years later too. Bob How was, so? Because it was on your record. They they looked at a lot of drummers. Nobody nobody pleased the band and him and. Uh, they they asked me to come in and I said ah, I really I'm stuck into the studio world now and he's come on give me. So I went down and played, and the guys in the band said, get Benny to do this. And so I said, all right, I'll do it. I really didn't want him to do it. So I take my passport down for visas in clearance and stuff the next day, and uh, he, he gets a word back from his, his uh, business people that we can't get into Japan or Australia with Denny because of that drug bust with McCartney, even though I had really no, no part in it, but it was part of my, on my record. So, But little did I know, I went there... Japan and Australia with Rick Danko from the band uh-huh. own armor trading later and had no problems getting in so I probably could have done that that tour if they would have played their cards right and just mm-hmm. submitted stuff at that but anyway Joe uh, Friday asked what it was like playing in the early shows in Scotland in the UK before Ram hit with Paul it was it was beautiful because you know he was he was really giving the world uh, a new fresh, honest look at what he was about to do. Mm-hmm. He says, there's some, there's some rough edges here, mm-hmm. but I believe we're going to... He really wanted us to be a band like the Beatles were, and he wanted us to be on call 24-7, and we'd go to the press office, we'd do interviews, we'd do photo sessions, we did every... He said, I want the public to know each and every one of you, just like John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Wow. And that was his wish. And uh, he wanted this to be a band where he could call the shots and and not get gruff about it. I'm you know, Mm -hmm. I'm sure that was part of it, too, even though he never said that. But uh, Mm -hmm. because he gave us free reign. He never told me what to play. Except on Uncle Albert. When we were recording Uncle Albert, I the first part I came up with, he said, nah, it's not really what I wanted to hear on that one. He said, you find something that goes along with the vocal, that's a little too plain. I went, oh, okay, why don't I just play along with the vocal? And he said, that's brilliant. So, And that's the only time he asked me to change anything I came up with. Somebody just said, Denny Sywell, the voice actor. Yes, you, you've done voice stuff, haven't yes. you? 1985. Tonight on NYPD Blue. No, I never did that. But I used to do a show called uh, The Lazarus Man. The mystery of the Lazarus Man continues. <laughs> no, I've been with the same agent, Vanessa Gilbert, since 1985. And I dabble in it. You know, I've got a voiceover studio in my... You have a great voice for it. It's fun. You don't have to carry drums. <laughs> so, yeah, your instrument's a lot lighter. Um, so... I know you did a lot of film work. You did a lot of TV work. That you did a lot of Gary Marshall. Gary Marshall was in my living room. I love Gary very much, and 
Um, I know you did music on Laverne Shirley, Happy Days. Um, I'm friends with a lot of those actors. How was that work, that TV work for you? Well, when I left the band. Okay, yeah, why, 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 did you, why did you leave the band, Danny? This is the part of the story that I don't care about. It was like, uh, there were some difficulties after the Beatles broke up and they had some legal crap going on that was really nasty. Mm -hmm. And it encompassed the, us in wings as well. Mm -hmm. And there was a court receivership. And uh, we were, when we, we joined wings, we had uh, an agreement that we would all be shareholders in the band for royalties and everything. Right. And that just didn't happen because of this other stuff. And, and after a while, the right steps weren't being made. And, and, and I just saw that uh, here I am in one of the top bands of the 70s, if not the top band, they said. Mm -hmm. And I had nothing to show for it. My career was just getting away from me. And I, I just made a pretty bad decision. Rather than sitting Paul down as a brother that he was and saying, hey, man, you got to do better than something's got to. I can't keep flying back to New York, do some jingles to pay my American Express bill, you know. So I, I wasn't making enough money to live. And um, mm -hmm. after a while, I just said, you know, something's wrong here. And, and it's, I take responsibility for a lot of that. I didn't sit them down and talk to them, but I just left. <clears throat> we, were, we were about to fly off the Logless and do band on the run. We had it all rehearsed, ready to go. And, and, and I just heard another bad piece of information from one of the guys. And I said, nah, I'm out of here. And Henry just left too. Henry was our, he and I were very close. And Henry just said, nah, he, he was pushed into a corner. Paul wanted to play the same thing every time we played that song. And, it, and he should. It's a beautiful solo. It's iconic on my love. Right. That guitar solo is one of the finest guitar solos of all times. And Henry just didn't like being forced into doing it. So he left the band and, and I begged Paul to replace him because we'd become uh, a good rock and roll band. Mm -hmm. I said, come on, let's break a new guy in before we go off. And he didn't do that. And, and I just said, enough. And, and I left. So um, one of my only regrets in life. Did, uh, how long did it, I've seen recent pictures of you guys together. So obviously that, bridge was mended. How did you, how, how long did it take to mend that bridge? Well, that was 1973 mm -hmm. uh, that I left the band <clears throat> and uh, it took 20 years. Oh, wow. 1993, he played the Anaheim. He brought his show out to Anaheim. And I just said to my wife, come on, let's drive down and go down to the stadium and just tell them we're there. We don't have tickets or anything. Just go down and tell security we're in a we're there and see what happens. So we drove down to Anaheim and I see a guy in a ball cart in a, a golf cart driving around. Security guy said, Hey, uh, hey, buddy. Uh, my name's Danny. I'm I, Paul's original drummer in the band Wings. I said, Would you go into his dressing room and tell him that me and my wife are sitting out here? He said, You really? I said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you can look, man, to ask anybody. So he goes into the dressing room, <clears throat> he comes out 30 seconds later, said, hop on, they want to see you. So we hop on the, on the golf cart right into his dressing room, and, and it's, you know, the kids are there, Linda's there, and it's, Monique used to babysit for the kids and everything when Rose wasn't around. It was just a beautiful time, you know. So, uh, and Linda gave us a home phone, so uh, 
I'm probably the only guy from the past that still has a really close relationship with him. And Monique and I do both. And, and we wow. pretty regular and talk pretty regular and text and all of that stuff, you know. Have you played it all together since then? No, I told him any time. Right after Linda passed away, though, I, I talked to him about doing something, uh, a benefit for, for Linda's food company or something, you know. Mm -hmm. And actually recording artists, actors, and, and athletes, Rad, asked me to go over and approach him on doing a Wings reunion. And that's why I said, well, I don't know, let me see. I called him up and he, he said, well, let him fly you over. I'd love to see you anyway. So they, they flew us over to, to see him. And while we were there, we were down at the studio in, in, uh, in the south of, Fran uh, south of England. And, uh, you know, we were just hanging out and having a good time he said we're going to reissue some of the early music <clears throat> from the band when it was just formed and do a documentary so uh you know he wasn't really interested in the reunion idea though because he said doing a reunion without linda would be like doing a beatles reunion without john yeah and i said i got it i get yeah. that so so anyway but uh, i helped him with the with that uh I think it was called Wingspan, mm -hmm. the documentary, and it was really good. Uh, it was a nice, nice piece of work, and I gave him some f backstage footage that we had. I used to have a, a cheap, from 52nd Street, there was a camera store that I bought a little video cat, eight millimeter or something, you know, Super 8 or whatever it was called. But we had dressing room scenes that were, he uses it on, in his show, the concert, and on that, on those documentaries. He used it several times already. So that was really great. And I just got to spend some time with him after Linda passed. And, and uh, we got very close after that. And what can I say? I'd, I'd, I would drop anything and go play with him at any time. And he knows it. I love that. <laughs> so, so how thrilling was it when Live and Let Die became like the biggest song that like ever was on the earth ever. Like, you, you know what? That was big and it oh. was thrilling, but you know what was even, every time I'd go to New York and I'd rent a car and go up to see my folks in Pennsylvania and I would turn on the radio, my love oh. seemed to get more play than even live and let die. Really? Oh my God. Yeah, it was a huge, huge, huge record. But thank God for living like that. I mean, I watched Paul write it. We were all up at the house and he said, yeah, I read the book the night before. They want me to write the theme for this movie. And uh, he sat down at the piano and he started thinking, James Bond, you know, you know chase stuff. So yeah, there's the chase bit. Then he, he wrote a He did some nice melody stuff. And then he said, we got to put some reggae. It's in Jamaica. So we were like deep into reggae at the time. So, so he came up with this little reggae bit. He wrote it in 10 minutes. And oh, my God. There. We, we broke all of our instruments out in the living room up at, up, up, up at the house there in, in uh, St. John's Wood. And we, we, we just set up around him and we started uh, learning some parts to it. And apparently, he ran a two-track or something after we were kind of happy with the arrangement. And then he sent that over to George Martin, and George uh, wrote the arrangement for the orchestra. We had like a small 40-piece orchestra. Small 40-piece. Well, no, it's usually 110, but... Is it really? <laughs> it can be, yeah. A lot of the films are, but... 
Wow. This was, and we recorded up at George's studio in London called Air London. And, wow. Uh, it was amazing. I mean, we were in and out with a completed track, mixed, overdubs, vocals, everything in three hours. What? Yeah, it was, it was scary. It was scary good. And uh, it was really a tremendous effort on everybody's part. Ray Cooper was called in to play a percussion. He had the timpani, you know, and he had duck calls on all the goofy, the reggae bits. And uh, it, was, it was, we had a big string section and, and the drums were in the middle of the room uh, or over on one wall, but mm -hmm. I, I, they were open a little bit. It wasn't totally enclosed like in a drum booth. Mm -hmm. and, uh, we only did maybe five takes or something in the beginning and we got the magic on one of those early takes and they wow. just put the rest of the vocals on it and did a couple overdubs and, and mixed it and we were out, we were done. Okay, so I know you didn't want to do this earlier, but I'm going to try and twist your arm because I love the version that you do with your dad's trio. Can I get you to do it? With the trio, yes, sure. Yes. Uh, okay, great. You guys, you're in for a treat. I just love this version of Live and Let Die. It well, is. I always wanted to have a, a uh, I always wanted to have a, an organ trio. I love jazz organ, you know, and I have this incredible guy that I've met and played with, Joe Bag, who was an organist, and John Cudini, a beautiful guitar player. He used to play he with is, Natalie Cole. He's amazing. He, he is truly amazing. is. He's one of the gods gifted him immensely. He's and so we, we played together one night at a club out here in Woodland Hills. A buddy of mine owned a restaurant, and we just for, for kicks. And uh -huh. we said, oh my God, this is good. Let's do it again. Oh my God, this is really good. Let's record it. And we recorded it right here in this room. Oh wow. My little home studio and it sounds great and everything, but Amazing. no, this, but that was the first record. This is on the second record of the Denny Seidel trio. And we did the first record, we did five McCartney songs, but this one we said, let's just do one rather than five. Okay, wait, wait, which one? Boomerang is the one that this one is. Boomerang is the newer record that came out two years ago in September, I think, on Quarto Valley Records, a great new label here in town. Which is what T-Bear is on and what Immediate Family. Family. And Edgar Winter is doing a project there. He's doing his own uh, tribute to Johnny right now. That's uh, Fantastic. And that's coming out. That'll be coming. I don't know when they're coming out. Because of the COVID, everything's set back. But, uh, oh, God. But and Reckless Abandon was the first was the first album with the trio. Yes, it was the same guys. It's called Reckless Abandon. It's on all the streaming sites and stuff like that. And it's really a great. I'm very so proud of these two records. But all right, I'll, I'll, I'll give you our version. Okay. Short version of Live and Let Die. All right. It's a treat. Play. <laughs> what the hell? There we go.
It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful version. Oh, it's so much fun when we recorded that. We recorded over at the NRG recording in North Hollywood, and I, I got a mix together immediately and sent it over to Paul. He just loved it. Oh. I said, why don't you guys just as you play on and play off music when you guys are coming on stage? <laughs> nice. So all right, so we have to talk about some. You've you've worked with so many incredible people. James Brown, what was that like? Oh. I can tell it. Okay, everybody in the studio, the playing studio, everybody was white, everybody in the booth was black. <laughs> James was producing Hank Ballard. And uh, he, uh, we're in there, in between tunes or something. We're in there, we got a hellacious groove going, a really nice groove. Mm -hmm. And James comes flying out of the control room and he gets a hold of Hank and he goes, Hank, this is too good for your record. This is going on my record. And he jumps in the vocal booth with Hank, and he starts singing. And it was called The Funky Side of Town. And we did a couple of tracks with James that day. So it was all happenstance. It wasn't planned, wow. but it was great fun. And I'm, um, uh, I'm proud. It was a Goodfoot album, which is a great record. Mm -hmm. And I, I spent a lot of time finding it. When I finally found it on the credits, it said, drums probably jimmy wet maxwell i didn't even get credit for it oh I no i still have the 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 uh this check stub from the session uh yeah that was a lot of fun i've done uh, a lot of weird stuff like that janice joplin too we okay we, so that was posthumous right so what was what was that like already gone god yeah Henry and I put a band together after Wings, and we were in San Francisco making records with Juice Newton and uh, Andy Fairweather Lowe and a lot of people up there mm -hmm. at Elliot Mazur's studio. And Elliot got a call from the family, of Janice's family, mm -hmm. saying, we have some live shows where Janice was so good, but Big Brother was, wasn't even there. Wow. And, yeah, they, they, was, there were some problems or whatever. So anyway, could you replace the band? And we said, well, let's give it a whirl. So up at Elliot's studio, we had the lights out and, and we had we had the earphone mix with Janice in the middle, Big Brother over here and, and us, our new parts over on this side. And we just ignored this a little bit. And, you know, and we, we replaced the Big Brother on a handful of tracks for that album. And it's called Farewell Song by Janice Shaw. It's her, uh, her last recording on CBS. Wow, that so you you are the silent big brother. I love that. So how about um how about playing with Art Gar Art Art Garfunkel? Art how Garfunkel was great. Yeah. It's just another session. You know, I get get a call from, a, hey, can you uh, do a session tomorrow at such and such? I said, yeah, I'll be there. So I just show up and Brooks Arthur and was the engineer, a good friend of mine from New York, and uh, I think uh, Richard Perry was producing it. And it was great. I loved his work. You know, with especially with uh, Simon and Garfunkel. I mean, that stuff was, was timeless. It's incredible stuff that'll live on forever. So it was a lot of fun meeting and playing with him. It was a great studio band. That's all it was, a studio band. We we go in, we give it everything, 110% right away. Right. Then move on to the next job. That's that's why we're, we do what we do. How about Joe Cocker? Oh, Joe Cocker, I mean. <laughs> I love Joe. Well, I was in, actually, I was in London uh, when this happened. Uh, I was performing with the Who, 
Um, oh, we've got to talk about that. That's crazy. Okay, but let's uh, talk about Joe first. Yeah. Lou Reisner, he's, he was gone now, but he made a version of the Tommy opera. It had a, a cover, was just a big uh, steel ball. What do you call that thing? You know, anyway, like a, just one big steel ball. And okay. That's the cover. And uh -huh. it's London Symphony Orchestra and a cast of characters playing all of the parts in the opera Tommy. So they decided to do it live at the Rainbow Theater in London. Finsbury Park and with the London Symphony, Rick Wakeman and I and two guys from Australia were the rock and roll rhythm section within the symphony. Oh wow. And then they had Keith Moon and Peter Sellers and, and David Essex and uh, what what year was this, Denny? Seventy-three or four. Okay. But we did a couple of nights live performances with the uh, with the, with the orchestra and everything. It was during the power cuts and all of that. It was pretty wild. Uh, not sure if it was 73. It might have been like December of 73, but it was cold. I remember that. And the power was being cut off and the string players were wearing duck blind hoods and gloves. They said, unless you get this theater up to 65 degrees, we're not breaking our instruments out of the case. Wow. So anyway, uh, yeah, it was, it was great fun though. And, uh, the last night we were there, um, I mean, just hanging out with Peter Sellers and Keith Moon, you know, you know God. Mary Clayton was was the acid queen. And of course, uh, what's his name? The the, the singer with the who? Uh, Roger Daltrey. Daltrey. Mm -hmm. Daltrey, he was there, but Pete Townsend had nothing to do with it. Antwistle oh. had nothing to do with it. Oh. But Moon did, he played Dirty Uncle Ernie. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to be great friends with Moon throughout the thing. And we had a party at his, uh, we had an after party, Keith and I with a couple of people out at his house in Tara, which was really a, uh, a memory that I'll just treasure. I mean, he had a jukebox full of the best stuff and, uh, oh man, and comedy records like Tony Hancock, uh, the British uh, Lenny Bruce. You know, I mean, I just, just tremendous, I just had a, an incredible time with, with Keith that night. And, mm. But while I was there in London, this was after I just left Paul. So I left Paul the end of like September, October, somewhere around there in 73. So this might've been the end of 73 or, or beginning of 74. Mm -hmm. So I still can't get, it was filmed. I'm dying to see that concert again. It was really great fun, but- uh, It's not accessible? I can't find it anywhere on the internet. Mm. There's two things like that in my career that I, I can't find. It. One was with Veronique Sanson and her husband, Stephen Stills, in Paris Olympia in 1975. I can't, and we did four nights filmed with an orchestra and filmed for ORTF, the French TV stations and all that. And I can't find that on the internet either. I know it exists. But anyway, so while I'm in town to do the Tommy Opera thing, Joe Cocker, going back to Joe, uh, who I'd known and hung out with. I love Joe. He was like a brother, man. And he, he calls me up and says, yeah, I'm recording over at the Rampart, the Who's studio in east side of town. <coughs> can, I, can I get you to come in and play some? I said, sure, man, I'll be right there. So Joe's on his back. He can't get off the floor. He's kind of drunk. <laughs> and he's singing. And it's beautiful. 
Just put out the light. Bam, downtown. Just put out the light. Oh, my God. It was, you know, they were just drinking a lot of Foster's Lager and, and other stuff. It was just a fun thing, and Nicky Hopkins was playing piano. There was a cast of Nikki characters. Was playing, Nicky Hopkins was playing on that John Lennon, George, and Ringo. Oh, he was playing wow. piano at that party when they were yeah. all singing oh, Ram. I'm and so blessed to have met some of these guys and actually played with some of them. I'll never forget Nicky. We were doing a recording in San Francisco, and he was running his thumb up and down the keyboard. And he goes, Elliot, I'm very sorry, but I seem to have gotten blood all over your keyboard. <laughs> uh, what a great musician, though. And, you know, so that's, and Joe and I, we were, we were great friends for many years. And uh, unfortunately, uh, when he passed away, uh, a good buddy of mine was his manager, Ray Neapolitan, mm. who I've known since 1968. Mm. One of the California people that I've known the longest, but... Uh, yeah, I never toured with Joe, but he always had great, great bands, and I, was, I didn't like leaving town. You could either establish a, a, a career being a session musician, or you could be a traveling guy and go on the road. And uh, <clears throat> that was a tough call to make. Well, so you said the, you, the regret you had was leaving Paul. Yeah. Any other regrets of make, having to making that choice of not doing? Not really. Uh, when I I started to say this earlier, though, when I left Paul, I kind of had it with bands. I, there's too much trauma mm -hmm. in bands and drama and trauma. And so, you know, I, I became a, a, the studio guy that went in and I, I played in the section, seven, eight percussionists in a 110 piece symphony orchestra. Wow. And my main guy was James Newton Howard was a good friend of mine. And I'd done some work with him, and he knew I was a, you know, I was accomplished musician. Right. He called me in to play in the orchestra part. So I'm not playing drum set. I'm playing all the percussion, you know, bass drum and cymbals and, and a, a, a mallet part or all the percussion stuff. Right. Just seven or eight guys, and you have to really be on top of your craft. And the, the music, they don't have time for, for people learning their parts. They turn the recording thing on the click tracks going and you got the music in front of you, you screw up if you screw up the second time they never even see you again you know so right they can't afford to any mistakes there you got to really know what you, and I, I really to this day i thank james newton howard for um calling me in to do that work and i loved it when when that i'll never forget we were doing water world and i called Mooney. Okay, wait. I know you, you you made a you did a couple of Kevin Costner films, The Postman, yeah. also, right? Postman, um, a couple, yeah. So okay, so <laughs> do you get into that through the music? Do you get into that because how did you get into those doors? Oh, oh, James wrote it. Okay. And James, uh, you, it's kind of a political situation here in LA. There's a nucleus of guys that do all that work. They're kind of symphonic players. There's no jazz musicians, no rock musicians. So they don't trust a rock musician or a jazz musician. They're talking about symphonic players. Right. And James knew that I could do it and he gave me a shot at it mm -hmm. simply because I have really good time. And they need somebody to really uh, make an orchestra play in time. Yes. So uh, I had a I had a purpose for him, and I could read the parts and play the parts and all. So anyway, uh, 
we were doing Waterworld, and I knew that there was a cue coming up in the afternoon session that was like a big, lush string section, a, a love scene kind of a thing. So I called Monique. I said, you know, get out of work early. She worked downtown at, at the she's vice president of a damn bank, you know. <laughs> she's down wow. there. Uh, I said, get up here now. Just walk Drive into the CBS lot down in Studio City. Drive in like you own the place. Park right in front of Tadeo Sound like you own the place. And walk right into the studio like you own the place. If the red light is on, don't come in. But if the red light isn't on, just throw the door open and walk in the studio. I'm in the back. I'll see you. So she said, really? I said, yeah. So she... You don't have to get through a guard to get on, this, on the lot? Uh, yeah. I said, when you get to the guard, just say scoring stage. That's all you say. Unexpected at scoring stage. So she's on the lot. She parks right in front of the place. There's a spot there. She walks into the studio. The light's not on. She opens up the door, and we were rehearsing this beautiful thing, 110 piece. You know these strings. <laughs> and I could just it like it stopped her. She just stood there, and it, when you hear an orchestra, 110 pieces in a room like that, it just stops you. <laughs> and I looked at her. I was in the back in the percussion section, so it's quite a distance, but I could see the look on her face and I started crying. Yes. <laughs> I started weeping. It was like a dream for me to do that for so many years, you know. And uh, there was some, I really miss that because I kind of stopped doing that stuff a couple of years ago and I took my pension from the musicians' union. But uh, if uh, James needed me again, I'd be, there. <laughs> I'd be there in a minute, you know. Yeah. It was brilliant stuff. Did you ever play the Hollywood Bowl with like orchestra stuff? No, I played it with those, one of those Beatle type bands, you know, we, they, they were doing a live broadcast. They asked me to come play Maybe I'm Amazed and a couple of tunes with them. That's the only time I've played the Hollywood Bowl. Um, okay, so let's talk about what you're doing now. Let's talk about, well, not COVID now, but Nothing. now the, the, the real world now. Yeah. So uh, tell us about your trio and, uh, and a little bit about uh, T-Bear and Route 66 and all the fun you're having these days. Yeah, it is fun. Uh, I'm playing with three bands. My trio is still my my first love. You know, I mean, these guys are just, we have an unwritten vibe that goes between us. And uh, it's just magic every time we get together to play. So I'm hoping as soon as this is over, uh, we're going to get out there. I, I really think that this, the both records, but Boomerang especially is really a, we should be doing the festivals all around the world. We, we really should. And it's just that there's no, there's very little money in jazz. So to find an agent and a manager that will put in the work for the very little money that, that it yields, yeah. uh, that's the difficulty, you know. Mm -hmm. So the trio is, uh, <clears throat> I'm hoping to do something with that real soon. And T-Bear, I started playing with T-Bear. We have a, a nine-piece band with Joe Sublat and, and Mark Pender and, and geez, Lawrence Juber's in it. And John, John, uh, oh my God, Woodhead, one of my favorite guitar players on the planet. And then uh, uh, we have another kid, Max, that plays the organ and, uh, and Paul Ill plays the bass. It's, uh, and we do a lot of the McCocker songs, Leon Russell songs, uh, that, that ilk, that genre of music, and it's and T Bear has really stepped up to the plate and written a whole bunch of great songs. I love his new C album, C whatever you call it. Yes. Yeah, well, it is an album. I think it's going to be released around February. 
Fabulous. Um, Tony Braunigal was called in. Love Tony. Yeah, I love, everybody loves Tony. He's, he's a great drummer, but he's really become. A wonderful producer, yeah. Wonderful producer. And he has all of the, uh, the wit to, to put all of that stuff together. It's not easy, you know, and uh, he was friends with us. And, and when I was down, I had a little surgery last year and I had to take some time off. He always filled in for me. He just came in and, and sat in with the band and, and did a great job every time. And, uh, the record turned out great. We did the first track was cut in the thick of the COVID over at Robbie Krieger's studio. Really? Yeah, we went in masked up. There's only five of us in a big room and then two guys were in isolation rooms. So three guys in the main room, which is a large room. And wow. we cut uh, one day at a time. Wow. And then uh, uh, he started doing, uh, he'd already recorded before COVID hit. The album was, was kind of recorded. And I think we recorded one more song after that. But uh, now the record is out. And I introduced uh, Bruce Quarto, the record company executive. That's his label, Quarto mm -hmm. Valley Records. I said, you, you should come down and hear this band because we're in recording now and uh, it's really a great record and maybe you want to think about putting them on the on the label and he came and he fell in love with the band signed them up and so uh, that record's going to come out and then the other project that I have going I play a lot with uh, Mike Garson who was David Bowie's musical director and it's funny Mike and I are the same age married the same amount of time we're wow work and we never knew each other in New York. We never knew each other in London when he was there with Bowie and I was with Paul. So we meet here mm -hmm. 30 some years ago and we had a jazz trio here. And we just picked that up a couple of years ago and we do some shows together. We do some theater shows like the Lobero Theater in Santa Barbara and we did a theater in, in San, uh, San, not Jose, what's it down at the beach? Anyway, uh, there's a theater, the Warner Theater down in San Pedro. That's what it was. Like 1,500 seat theaters. But we have the jazz trio. We have a string quartet and the David Bowie singers. So we do a little set of jazz. We do some classical stuff. And then we do the Bowie stuff. And wow. Well, who are your Bowie singers? Uh, Sting's son, Joe Sumner. I saw him with, uh, they did the Bowie tribute thing, a big, and I saw him. He's fantastic. Oh, my God. And the other girls, there's two girls that are, I can't think of their names right now, but they're just underground heroes. They're, they're wonderful. Bernard uh, Fowler, does he sing with you guys? Because he does the Bowie tribute thing. Well, mm -hmm. But uh, Bernard filmed a, a show with us, with the trio, with Mike Garson's trio, Bernard and Shelby Flint. Mm -hmm. out at uh, Bogies, and mm -hmm. that show is still available, I think, on Alert the Globe. Okay. Which is a wonderful, alertthegloob.com. They, they film live programs, and uh -huh. they do a better job than I've ever seen anybody do. Wow. It's like being there. It really is a bunch of cameras, a bunch of great sound. They, they know how to do it. Wow, okay, good to know. Company, and, uh, a lot of people are getting involved with that company, especially now with the COVID. They're right. broadcasting live concerts. So, you know, my, my life is pretty full. I still do some, I love teaching drums, and I had a bunch of students before the COVID. I'm down to two now. I do one live and one Zoom. Okay, so now how do you do a live, how do you safely do a live lesson? How do you do I don't that? Know. 
it's safe, but the, the kid comes in, his parents go in the pool in the back, and the kid and I come into the room, and we mask up, and we spend an hour together, mm -hmm. and I'm, uh, I'm at least six feet away from him, if not more. Mm -hmm. I sit on one side of the desk, and the drums are over here, so uh, it's been pretty safe so far, mm -hmm. and uh, I feel kind of okay about it. And know. how is it giving a drum lesson online? How, how does it's hard? It's challenging, but uh, uh, actually, it's it's Mike Garson's grandson, and he's quite talented. And the fact that he wants to be a jazz drummer, you know, I can just get him playing along to give him a, a, a complete immerse him into the old where jazz came from, from the '30s, '40s, '50s, all the way up. It was kind of a jazz history thing where I can get him knowing the drummers that, that made jazz what it is today and understanding the idiom completely and just letting him play along and show him what he's not doing right and what he's doing right. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's really rewarding. I've had several students that went on to, you know, the, the one kid was uh, Cheryl Teat's son, Zach, wow. the model. He came to me, he was this, this tiny little blonde haired kid, that ah, is killed, never amount to anything and my god in seven or eight years he was uh, playing his butt off wow he's now married has a child he's living in london but he went to nyu continued on as a drummer and he, i think he's a model now but wow. uh, um, he's really talented he's got a, and i had a couple of kids like that that were really super talented and uh, i had a couple of guys that were pros that came to me for some lessons that I can help a pro more than I can help a kid because you uh -huh. move up to the next notch, you know? Right. So, and I enjoy doing it. Uh, it's, so, Danny, it's almost time for the debate, but before we go, I we didn't plan this, but do you have something else you can take us out with that leave us with some music and uh, make no. us all happy before we're about to go start screaming at the television? Let me see. And um, I've I've enjoyed this so much, Denny. I've so enjoyed getting to know you. Um, this is wonderful. We see each other in in another part of our lives, but it's yeah. wonderful to get to know this part of you. No, it's really sweet, and I, I I think you're performing a really nice service for, especially us locked in into the COVID here. I mean, entertainment is really at a at a premium right now, and for you to be able to do this. Uh, is it on a weekly basis? Yeah. And yeah. well, I go five days a week. I do shooting the shit with Vicky four days a week and just talk to people. Oh, okay. Well, I, think it's, I think it's wonderful because we certainly need to break the monotony of this whole darn thing. It's definitely been saving my life. That's for sure. Okay. Here, here the, this was a McCartney song that we did on the first album. Ooh. I might mess it up a little bit, but it's, That's it's all right. We'll forgive you. It's energetic, it's it's a lot of fun, and it's attractive. A lot of people will know this song. It was Paul's song, Coming Up. Oh, uh, yes, indeed. And for all of you out there who are- Are say goodbye now, or what? Uh, yeah, for everybody out there watching, um, thanks for tuning in. And um, uh, thank you, Denny, so much. And uh, enjoy the debate. Uh, let's, I'm gonna be golden king my heart out, okay? And um, And thank you so much again, I just love this. All right, prayers for everybody out there. I love you all.
around for about 10 minutes. So. <laughs> that was, that was, that was mind-blowing. Uh, you know, I've had to get educated to jazz, but I've come to love it. That was fantastic. Oh, thank you. It's a real challenge to play as softly as I have to play here to make it work on Zoom, so. Well, you did it brilliantly. Thank oh, you thank so you. much, Denny Sywell. I have enjoyed it tremendously. Okay, so go blue. Let's go watch some debate and go Kamala. Thank Hallelujah. You. Thank you. Take Love care. you. Bye. Love you too. Bye.